0: All right, welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab Podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit with Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and today we're going to be talking about data sharing and the conversation regarding metadata or contextualized data and the difficulties and lack of standards, maybe, is a a way we can describe it around this area. Um, I think we saw this at the forefront of a lot of conversations, especially on everyone's mind during the COVID-19 pandemic when we were all trying to share information and contextualize what's actually happening with the information being shared, it wasn't exactly obvious to even understand even just the minimal contextual information of where this was from, the data was collected, and the primer sequence that was utilized to to generate the data. Um, So there's been a huge amount of efforts in working groups that I know you're a part of in terms of uh, the phage universe uh, to address this problem. But I'm guessing this is something that you've seen throughout your career, even before the pandemic, you want to maybe start us in, in that conversation?
1: Yeah, I guess this has been sparked by a paper from FH, from the Data Standards uh, Working Group, or Data Structures Working Group. And yeah, it what always ha- seems to happen is people don't share their data, or they share it with their, you know, no metadata or the wrong type of metadata or incompatible metadata. And then it, it's not as useful as it should be. Ideally, you know, if you get an outbreak somewhere, you should be able to go into public archives and say, right people have seen this in 10 other countries, it's in nuts or it's in you know this type of environment. And then you can go from there and you can actually make quick, rap, uh, rapid decisions. But often people don't put up that information, even the most minimal of minimal information is missing. So what I've seen, and uh, I'm partially a fault, I'll put my hand up to that. Uh, like when I was at Sanger, um, just the way the systems worked, uh, we would accession samples as they came physically into the building. But we Wouldn't necessarily have the metadata to go with those, you know, that would come later or might have to be pulled together. So the samples would often or usually be sequenced before the metadata arrived. And to get around that, we'd create a bio sample, which is like the metadata placeholder in INSDC, um, for a sample, and that would just have basically the species that we were told it was. Doesn't mean it is the actual species of the sequencing, so just be aware of that. And then basically some kind of identifier, and that was it. That was the absolute minimum um, that had to go in, which is not useful at all. And then the idea was it'd be sequence, and then you know people would update the metadata later. But often that didn't happen. I know there's a bit of a back uh, backfilling operation later, but you know sometimes th- this metadata would be stuck in you know supplementary materials for papers or in PDFs or things that aren't very useful to people. And so that's kind of a historic legacy there. Um, And people are trying to correct that to actually make stuff useful. So there's this uh, pathogen data object model uh, from Phage, and they're trying to address this, you know, just to do a little bit better
0: um, with data sharing and metadata. And I think what you described has traditionally been the common model where there's like a single institution that maybe Receiving samples from a number of different places. And it might be just a specimen and really minimal information about what kind of specimen you're receiving and not that Mm -hmm. other contextual information. So they might not even have access to the information to share to INSDC or whatever international data repository. And also, one thing I would say that we've noticed is that a lot of those laboratories are maybe in some way academic. Um, Whereas now, especially during the pandemic, so many more public health laboratories were equipped with. Uh, sequencing, um, instrumentation, and bioinformatics capabilities, and they were much closer to the contextual information, and they needed that contextual information to make decisions and understand what was happening with with SARS-CoV-2. So it was the timing to speak to that audience what was, was prime um, during the COVID-19 pandemic there.
1: But also uh, public health labs don't necessarily have the ability to share data, yeah <laughs> so like a lot of uk data if you have a look at it uh, it'll look like one place in london called colindale is like a hot spot of all disease but that's because that's where the lab is based um, yeah for a uk to say or a public health thing that is used to be called and so that's just, you know, within their framework, they just cannot release the data unless you come to them and say, you know, these are the reasons. And then, you know, then they'll share more or they'll share it with other public health bodies quite easily, say, through genome track or whatever, through private private means. But it's it's a really interesting thing. You know, you can't necessarily trust all the data you get. And also, it think they're very important fields that are often missing. Like, is this person a traveler or not? That's a key piece of information. Because, mm. you know, if they've come from somewhere totally else in, somewhere else in the world, it makes a big difference versus someone who picks up a disease um, or pick, picks up an infection, you know, in the local community. So, you know, you might be saying, oh, well, you know, is this a multi-country outbreak or is it just you've got a few travelers who've gone to other countries? Big difference. And it's very important.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, during the pandemic as well. There were so many lessons learned there, but it was also a lot of conversation of, uh, the restrictions of even the geographical information that you were able to share, now, you said often it was either country or state in in a lot of previous frameworks it would be that information was maybe um, delayed release to some extent. So like you couldn't track it back to the individual or the patient. So that was the whole, uh, you know, schema of protection is you don't want to release information, obviously, that was personally identifiable or personal health in- or would constitute as personal Health information, so there was a lot of restrictions on that. But then, you know, during the pandemic, it's not like you'd be able to identify the person it was when there was hundreds or thousands of cases at a time. So there was more, uh, more discussion of what level of or what resolution of information could be shared. And I think that's what what's helpful about having something like this proposed data object model, in that it proposes what are the minimum pieces of information that are, that are really relevant to public health that make this public health or make this information useful for the public health community when you're sharing this information. And this is something that this working group, your working group with Emma, uh, led by Emma Griffith in in, uh, Finn over there, um, the Canadian public health bioinformatics scientist there, that they put out with uh, SARS-CoV-2 in mind and then have now since adopted it to really all pathogens or infectious diseases of, of public health concern.
1: And what really um is good about this particular paper is that it has representatives from the different um major INSDC uh archives. So you have the Europeans, Americans, and Japanese on there, and you have representatives from all you know the, the very big producers of data like the FDA and CDC. So, you know, it, it's quite nice. Um you've got a effectively buy-in um, with all these authors on it, and it means that it's actually more likely to be used, implemented. And it's not just yet another standard that comes out and people forget. It is actually something that is practical and useful, which a lot of academia isn't, you know, because you don't get funding for the, uh, you know, practical necessarily, because that's uh, routine and mundane. But it's really important.
0: Yeah, again, something that that has been uh, with public health, having that closer relationship with academia uh, over the past couple of years, you're seeing these pragmatic, efforts uh, being addressed and prioritized especially again with public health if it was only academic an academic exercise it'd be driven off of curiosity and okay we could maybe tag people really suggest heavily hey this information would be helpful but in the case of public health lab you have public health stakeholders that are saying no this is the information that needs to be shared otherwise it's we can't look at trends we can't understand the geographical patterns we can't even look at a, a high level of surveillance of how the disease is spreading so I think you're right. This this emphasizes the pragmatism, a step forward in standardizing the field. Um, so yeah, huge congrats. And uh, again, this paper in the data structures group. Um, so so, how do you see the, the impact of this now? Um, and what's what's the, I guess, the the next step forward? Now that this is proposed as the pathogen data object model, how do you see adoption maybe? Uh,
1: well, I guess if the major producers of data adopt it and then the archives allow for it, then you mm-hmm. have that know perfect way of bringing everyone else along you know because you you need that critical mass and you need people to you know take that first step and it's hard being the first people to do things but it's required and then you know obviously you'll tease out other issues that pop up along the way um I think probably one of the most important things is actually around ontologies and actually having a common language that's controlled because you know Around the world, we don't all speak English, or even if we do speak English, we have different words for to mean the same thing. You know, like you'd say tap, or we'd say tap, you'd say faucet. And, you know, if a sample is collected from that and you don't understand the differences in language, well, then, you know, you can come to incorrect conclusions, or even nuts. You know, different people will classify, uh, say, nuts in different ways. You know, some people would say, well, peanuts are nuts. You know, our ground nuts are totally different to, say, hazelnuts and things. And that is an important distinction as well, um, particularly around food. And so <clears throat> it is very important to have this kind of common language that anyone can tap into and say, definitively, absolutely, we understand what this is, categorize it
0: correctly, and use it. Can you speak on that a little bit, the conversation of ontologies? Because that's something I like had to learn about coming into the field of bioinformatics. Otherwise, I didn't. Realize why it was a challenge describing something as chicken, poultry, farm, animal. Uh, so yeah, that that's a big part of this as well. Do you mind maybe explaining ontologies and its relevance uh, to public health and bioinformatics? Yeah, uh,
1: it is. It's very very niche. You know, some people get really excited about it, but it is a super important <laughs> because if you think about chicken, right? It did the person eat say cooked chicken in a restaurant and get ill, or was it? you know, uh, uh, something they cooked at home, you know, because they bought a full thing and made it themselves, or is it, you know, the chicken on the farm and the farmer got infected? Um, You know, so whatever way, whatever point in the life cycle it is, it's important to know because you can have different responses and different uh, uh, measures can be taken, different conclusions can be drawn. You know, if it is, say, just someone, you know, maybe handling chicken poorly at home, that's not going to cause many problems, you know, by the household. But if it's within a factory producing um, products for you know millions of people, then that could be a huge deal. And so it is very important uh, to understand the the nuances and to get that across to other people. Additionally, um, we live in a very um, international globalized world and so products and ingredients can come from all over the world. It can be different to track things down. So for example, in the UK um, or in, in Europe, we had an outbreak in chocolate. So, these little kind of kinder eggs were causing um, issues uh, that children eat. And of course, you know, you don't want children to get sick. And tracing it back, you know, they could they identify, okay, it's a factory in, uh, in Belgium. And, you know, tracing it back further, it wasn't just that factory, it was another factory that supplied product to multiple factories. And it just happened to get into that one and cause problems, and then in any of those products. Um, and of course, chocolate has a long shelf life, so, you know, it goes everywhere. Um, and I went all over Europe, and so you know, having being able to trace that back and actually definitively put into a database and say, you know, this is the thing that is making people sick, uh, is really important.
0: And exactly, that's where these ontologies come into play. Mm-hmm. Of these, these systems of formalized language that are computer readable, really, right? Otherwise, you'd have to have a human interpreting. Oh, when they say poultry, I think in this area of the world they mean a backyard chicken. Whereas maybe this guy I know oh that was Andrew he put poultry but what he really means is uh, chicken dinner uh, and specifically breast meat um, so when you have these ontologies these controlled formal categories of uh, a strong language you can make these connections you can you can do some uh, computational analysis to to understand what pe- what we're all talking about um, so that that is a huge effort it's a really difficult thing to, to get done and standardized and adopted. I think the first time I was ever introduced with to concept of ontologies and its importance was with antimicrobial resistance and the um the card database that's where i first saw i was like oh this is the beauty of an ontology because before that it was like i was tracking down gene synonyms and trying to figure out what is the function what is the uh, protein family and otherwise but seeing an ontology layout where i can click a gene and see how it's related to this whole network of terms i was like oh this is an ontology And now you're seeing that kind of pushed uh, also with the the metadata here. Because I think even now to this day, if I go into NCBI pathogen detection, you're going to see the lack of that structure and you're going to, you're going to almost thirst for it, right? You're going to see like leafy greens, lettuce, salad, or something like that, all trying to tie back to the same source. Um, But they, they may all, they, you don't know if they mean the same thing or something different without an ontology and without this uh, uh, kind of language so. Yeah, I think the you're you're seeing the utility in that already.
1: And also, then there's other things like uh, just defining terms. You know, say dates. Dates are a huge thing. You know, it's very important to know did something happen yesterday or a year ago or ten years ago. And you know, between obviously Europe and America, we we write dates differently. You know, you guys put the month first, I think, and which uh, is bonkers and crazy. <laughs> so you can, you can very mis- easily misinterpret things because they look as the, you know, you can have dates that look the same. Um, but it is important, you know, when you start drilling down, you know, when you get a, a date in a sample, what does that mean? Is that the data was received in the sequencing lab? The data was released. The data uh, arrived uh, in, you know, maybe the original extraction lab. Was the data was actually collected on? So there, there's so much nuance in something that seems so simple, but it is so important. And then other labs will, uh, for legal reasons, will put in jitter into their dates, you know, because maybe it's something quite rare. They yeah. don't want people to know exactly when it happens. Um, so that can cause confusion as well.
0: Date formats are uh, a yeah, nuanced and hilarious conundrum for, for data scientists. I had to look it up exactly, the ISO standard, because I know for the, the date format um, fanatical groups, the ISO 8601, if you're familiar with that, which is the, the four-digit four year, two-digit month, two-digit day. That has become the default, and that is uh, definitely... The, the one I, I propose for most people to adopt, but this was a great conversation. Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the conversation of standardizing the field, standard, standardizing the types of data that goes in and even the way in which that information gets it deposited to the databases uh, is an amazing step forward. So congrats to, to you, Ruth, Timmy, and, and uh, I believe was the lead author in that. And then all the other folks in the data structures working group, again, something led by Emma Griffith, uh, Finn McGuire, yeah, through Phage, another huge step forward. Yeah, any final words on this?
1: No, I'd say uh, we'll put the paper into the uh, show notes and uh, have a read of it. All right. See you all in the next one.